about what we're doing this fall in case you're new. We're talking about God's story and your story, how his changes yours. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about a very simple thing. Genesis 1, not a simple passage, often misunderstood, but the point is simple. God has made a home for you. That's what Genesis 1 is about. More than it's about the Hubble telescope or, or, uh, or astronomy or biology, it's first and foremost that God has made a home for you. Uh, and the gospel is God has... Uh, moved through hell and high water to bring you back home. And that is a theme repeated throughout the New Testament, especially prodigal son and places like that. So that gives you kind of a leg up on understanding. Listen for that as we read this passage. It's a little long, and so to help us uh, appreciate something that's probably familiar and a little lengthy, um, we're going to read it in a little bit different way, but I will get us started on it. It's Genesis 1. You have the beginning and the end because it wouldn't fit. (laughs) So buckle up and... uh, And would you stand for the reading of God's word as well? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was uninhabited and uninhabitable, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and he separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs for seasons, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be light in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set in the, in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. And God said, the 
So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. And God said, And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and to the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have, shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. Let me pray for us. You can be seated as well. Oh, our God, would you be here tonight? Would you, um, I'm confronted with the weakness and impotence of my words compared to what we just saw your words doing. You barely uttered a word and galaxies leapt into existence. You said another word and millions of species uh, were designed and took shape and grew and developed. And Father, uh, we are left with our words, but I pray that tonight my words would actually be your words and therefore they would have power and they would recreate uh, because we are people who are not ordered, who are not under control the way your creation was originally under control and ordered. Uh, And we are people who are homesick and want to be home. And so Lord Jesus, tonight, would would that be the fruit of this time together? We ask this in your name. Amen. I'd say a couple of times in my life, there have been movies that have stuck with me so profoundly that they've actually become a part of me. They've become how I think about life, how I think about the gospel. And one of those movies uh, is Blood Diamond. Um, if you've seen Blood Diamond, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Jennifer Connolly, and is my cultural helper here, Jennifer Connolly and, uh, and some other folks. And it's a, it's a movie about the Blood Diamond Wars and the Civil War that happened in Sierra Leone in the 1990s. And if you're not familiar with the Blood Diamond, it's a, it's a big deal these days because uh, they're fighting over land that has diamonds, each of which is worth millions of dollars or at least tens of thousands of dollars that get exported to Europe and America and wind up on people's fingers here. And so this movie uh, was kind of an action-packed, rather violent look at this civil war as these people fought. And, and the way they fought is child soldiers. 
Some of you have been to Uganda, you've been involved in missions there, and you know about the child soldier situation there. But these are people like 10 to 15 years old. They're expendable. There's plenty of them. That's why they gather them. And they train them to be killing machines. And Blood Diamond is about a father, Solomon Vandy, and his son, Dia Vandy. And the movie opens up, and Dia Vandy is at that age where your dad can do no wrong, where you mimic everything he does, where you're absolutely certain of his love for you, and you follow his every move. And all of, the, all of the scenes of their village are very tranquil and peaceful. It's his mom, it's his dad, it's his little sister, and they're working the fields and they're coming home. And all of that gets shattered one day when the loud engines of all these land cruisers come up with dozens of rebels on the backs of them. And as soon as their boots hit the ground, they start mowing down the entire village. Women, children, old people, and men. The only people they spare are the boys, the little boys. Uh, Solomon Vandy was, was out in the field. He was not there, and so he survived. His son, uh, Dia, was kidnapped by these rebels. And the movie traces this father, Solomon, who had nothing left at home. Everyone else was dead. The village was burned. It was gone. And, and Solomon Vandy literally traverses Sierra Leone searching for his son, Dia. And there's a few times where Dia and Solomon cross paths, but Dia, here's what life has looked like for Dia over the, over the year that he was uh, kidnapped there. He is taken into these barracks, and he is systematically indoctrinated to become, instead of a little 12-year-old boy who loves his father and does everything his father does, to become a heartless, ruthless, hollow killing machine. They would chant things like, shed their blood, shed their blood, They came in the first day and said, your mother and your father are weak, they're dead. They're they're the leech on our culture, they're the reason we're poor, they're little dinky fishermen and farmers. But you are men, and you're going to save this country, because you're a killing machine. And they would line these boys up, and they would blindfold them, and they would bring in prisoners and put them there, and they would say, pull the trigger, and that's how they would make them callous to killing human beings. Because once they'd killed one, they were ready to kill another. And so Dia Vandy, by the time he crosses path with his father again, is a whole different person. He is a killing machine trained to take life. He is hollow. You look in his eyes and it's just glass eyes. There's no life behind it. He's hollow. He's dead. And so his father finds a rebel camp. And Dia is there playing cards and drinking liquor with all the other 12-year-old boys, like every 12-year-old boy does. And he comes up to the edge and it's a rainy night and he says, Dia! Dia, come here. And Dia turns around and he sees this man who he doesn't recognize and he, and he ignores him. Dia, come here. Dia turns around and he looks at this guy, picks up his gun and he says, enemy, enemy, who are you? He says, I'm your father. And all of his other buddies get their guns and come around and so the father has to run away. A lo- a, probably several months later, accidentally seemingly, These two will cross again. And this time, Solomon Vandy, the dad, will look up and Dia will have a forty-five caliber pistol to his temple as he's he's working in the ground. And and this this is the scene that I will never forget. And this is the scene that completely shapes how I think about Genesis 1. And I think what I'm describing to you is Genesis 1. This is what... The father says when he sees those hollow, dead eyes of that little 12-year-old boy that loved his father and loved life in his village with his mom and sister. This is what he says. Dia, Dia Vandy, 
from my family and my tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She, makes, she waits by the fire making plantains and making red palm stew with your sister and the new baby. And the cows wait for you. And that wild dog that loves nobody but you. I know they made you do bad things. But you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me. And you will be my son again. Dia Vandi, nothing could break this little killer's heart except his father coming and saying, Dia, I am your father, you are my son, and you're coming home with me. And you will be my son again. Genesis 1 is the story I just described to you from Blood Diamond. Genesis 1 is not about Hubble telescopes and biology lessons and whether it took 24 hours or six epochs of time for, a, for an infinitely powerful God to speak a word and things come into existence. Here's the thing. We'll come back to this in a little bit, but when you think about that story, it's the story of a father whose son was indoctrinated, was told other stories, and that son began to be shaped by those stories. He marinated in life like that for a year, and guess what? Ideas have consequences. Stories have consequences. The stories that we live into have consequences. They either make you alive or they kill you. And for Dia, they killed him. They took the life right out of him. And so this father goes through hell and high water, chasing down his son to bring him home. How does he get him to come back home? He tells him what home was like. He puts him back on the map. He tells him who he is. He tells him who, who the father is. And I think that's what, uh, that's what Genesis 1 is. Here's why. And then we'll talk about here's why it's a story for us tonight too, a fresh story. Israel, when Israel had received Genesis chapter 1, they were at some point in the wilderness. They had been in captivity under Pharaoh for 400 years. Hearing things like, you are trash, you are dirt, you are worthless. Where's your big God now, Israel? Wouldn't he have delivered you by now? Sounds impotent to me. At least our God has made us the superpower of the world. Where's your God? He's not there. Your trash, your slaves, 400 years. You know how long the slave trade in America and the West lasted? I don't know exactly, probably 100, 150, 200 years max. Double that. That would mean the slave trade would still be going on today. How would it shape you if that's where you did life and all of your family tree, that's where they did life? And you heard every day, you are trash. You are worthless. You don't belong. You exist to serve Pharaoh. You exist to serve Egyptians. How does, what does that do to your head? What does that do to your heart? And why would Israel need God to come in the first words he utters? is not this random astronomy lesson. It's like you go into the ER with a broken leg and the doctor's like, I know you're in pain. I know this is hard for you, but I want to sing a song to you. The leg bone's connected to the hip bone, the arm bone. And you're like, okay, maybe true, not timely. And so Israel is, with all of the scars of 400 years of doing life in someone else's story that isn't true, and the God who just delivered them, the God who just drowned the world's superpower like that, And the God who just brought his son, Israel, who he called his son, out into the wilderness, now is speaking to them. And what's the first words out of his mouth? Israel. Israel. 
I am your father, and you are my son, and I am going to take you home now. Home meant promised land. That's where they were headed. How does this apply to us? Why should you listen for the next 15 minutes? Well, because. Have you already begun to make connections? Do you see how the stories that we live into, the the cacophony of other voices around us that are saying, you are this, you are that. You exist to satisfy every fleeting pleasure that comes to your mind. You're a human being. You only live once. Live it up. That's been around for all time, not just us. It's not like our culture is like uniquely weird. That was the Epicureans back like before Jesus' time. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. That's a great story. YOLO's a great story. Uh, if you have a desire in your heart that you didn't ask for, then God put it there and it must be good, so embrace it and live into it. There's another story. Where does that come from? Or how about there is no God, you're just material. These are the stories we're shaped by. If you're this weight, you'll be happy. If you look like this, you'll be happy. If you have this much money, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be alive. That's where we do life. And guess what? It doesn't take 400 years for that to destroy us. It could just take 17, 18, 19, 20, 32, whatever. And that stuff begins to get in us uh, because ideas have consequences. And so where does Genesis meet you tonight? What stories does Genesis, does God through this passage in Genesis 1, where does he meet you tonight what, what other homes have you built that he's saying, I'm calling you back home? What other stories is he calling you back out of? We talked about the past few weeks, these myths that our hearts are drawn to. Um, here's the point tonight. God has made a home for us. There's a shout out to me. I forget this. I'm not culturally in tune. Who's, what's the band that did uh, Home is River? I'm with you. Those guys. See, I, I'm hip. Uh, yeah, those guys. Home is wherever I'm with you. You could say that's what Genesis 1 is about too. You could say that's what a lot of the Old Testament is about. Home is wherever you're with God because you were made to be at home with him. And so that's what we're going to talk about. And so uh, here's the first thing uh, we will look at. We're going to zoom in and kind of look at three angles on that. We're going to spend some time on the first and not much time on the second too because they're really the same thing. We're going to talk about this a lot this fall, but here's, here's, here's the first thing about God has made a home for us. Sin tends to depersonalize life. Think about this. You remember Jesus and the woman at the well? And she can tell this guy knows something about her past. And so she starts talking about which church is better to worship on, that mountain or back in Jerusalem. And Jesus, having the opportunity to have a great impersonal philosophical debate, says, where are your husbands? And he takes it back personal. Think about sexual sin. Why does sexual sin hurt so bad? To everybody involved? Because sexual sin, sexual immorality, you could call it, or, or whatever, whatever word you want to use for that, what it does, it's actually the epitome of a depersonal act. It's a, it's, a, it's a narcissistic, selfish act. But sex is, by its very nature, relational. It's, it is intimate. It is personal. It's, it's, as, it's as personal as you can get. And so you're actually engaging in a, in a very depersonalized thing. It's something I enter into all for my own satisfaction. This other person, they're just there as a prop. Or the ideas that populate our head, they're just there as a prop. And so it depersonalizes. And if you're the victim of, some, of, of, of being in some encounter with someone, and you know it, what, they didn't really love me. They loved an orgasm. They loved what I did for them. How do you, do you just feel your personality draining out? You're like, I'm a body. 
That's all I am to them. That's what, that's what sin does. It takes the personality out of life, the personality out of the world. Think about how most of us, most of our culture talks about Genesis 1. Is it not in an incredibly impersonal way? Even Christians, we get sucked into these conversations about Genesis 1 and we say, okay, Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, and then we, we very quickly move to arguments about, well, how long is a day? Or... Is it theistic evolution? Is it naturalistic evolution or atheistic evolution? Or is it creationism or or is it whatever else? Not bad questions. Genesis is true history and it's speaking truthfully. I'm not saying that stuff's not true. It absolutely is speaking about real events and real history. But is that its main point? If you come to this passage with all of these scientific questions, are you coming to the passage with questions it's not concerned to answer? It's not its priority, even if it's your priority. And so we need to, maybe we need to ask better questions of this passage. Maybe God needs to give us, give us better questions. And when God meets his people, Israel, the first time, what's on his mind is not astronomy. It's home. It's who are you? Where are you? Who were you made for? What were you made for? Who am I? Those are the questions that Genesis 1 talks about, not impersonal stuff. And all the other impersonal creation myths our culture has Naturalistic evolution depersonalizes in the the maximum way. There is no God. You're just uh, accumulated atoms careening through, and somehow you wound up in a coherent being. But it depersonalizes, and the people who buy into that story become that story, and they become impersonal, depersonalized people. Materialism takes out the personality to life. Uh, Again, you're just material. You're just physical, so live it up. Have a great time, but... You eventually, uh, you kind of, you collapse under your own weight of narcissism and your relationships suffer. And we edit God out. That's what these things do. And I think Genesis is, Moses is bringing God back into a picture where he had been edited out by the stories Egypt had been hearing and by the stories that you and I hear. Genesis 1 is for people who have a track record of, if you're in a science or an engineering or I guess any field, really, here's what we tend to do. It's like your windshield when there's a speck on the windshield. And if you obsess about the speck on the windshield, you never see through the windshield to see what's beyond it. A windshield is not there so that you can look at the windshield. It's there so that you can look through it and see what's beyond it. Creation, Psalm 19 says, day by day pours forth speech. Night after night proclaims God's glorious brilliance and beauty. But... If you never see through that, if you never see through what he has made, you obsess about the actual physical stuff itself, you never see through it, you crash. Just like you crash in a car if you only look at the speck and not what's beyond it. Because creation wasn't just made to be there. Creation was made to testify, to point us back to the God who made it, to tell us about what he's really like. And here's the thing, and we'll, we'll move on after this, but it's like in, in our impersonal world's And in Israel's depersonalized world, with all these other stories, God is coming back and he's saying in this passage, it's about me. It's all about me. All of life is about me. You remember when Jesus says, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. What does that imply about the middle? If he stands tall at the beginning and he stands tall at the end, who stands tall in every single thing in the middle? Jesus Christ. And so do you see how it's problematic if our lives aren't aligned and orbiting around this God? It's not a little cosmetic defect that we fix on the side. 
That's actually a life-defining, life-collapsing issue. Because if you were made uh, to orbit around the God who in the beginning God, before there was anything, in the beginning God, if our lives don't orbit around him, they're orbiting around nothing. They collapse in on themselves. And that's what he's saying in here. And so God is always going to be pulling us back to his person, his person, his person. It's about me. It's about me. It's about me. And reinserting himself into the stories that we tend to do our lives in. And this, this really, this is actually very freeing to see the living God come back into a picture where you might have chalked them up as AWOL or not there. Because perhaps you've been so focused on what's happening in your life, you haven't seen through it, like we talked about last week in Psalm 139, to who is beyond it. We'll push on a real quick question. What does, what does this God like? I, I want to challenge you. Go home tonight and read Genesis 1 again with this question in mind. What is this God like? One, he's powerful, right? He says a few simple words, and what you and I have seen in the Hubble telescope careens out according to its kind, according to its order. It just, it flows right out. So he's powerful. The question is this, though. What does he do with his power? What is a God who is dripping with raw, infinite power? What does he, what does he use his power for? Because this week, we've seen dictators who've used their power to gas 1,400 people because those people got in their way. And now we see nations who are using their power to stay back or, or whatever else, but everyone's concerned with their own interests. They're using their power for their own interests. You see it in marriages. Maybe you saw it in your parents, and maybe that was devastating to you to see how your dad or your mom leveraged their power to get what they wanted at the expense of the other. Or a dating or roommate relationship. What does God do with his power? What does he do with his power? Because if you're like me, you suspect that he uses his power to increase his happiness and decrease mine. And you think it's an incompatibility that God's joy and my joy could be compatible together or that God pursuing his interests could actually also mean God pursuing our interests. That's what he uses his power for, right? Where do you see that? All the times in this passage where he is using his power to create a place that is custom designed, custom calibrated to the millimeter for you to thrive. If you read the passage again, you're not just going to see God created the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, blah, blah, blah. It's God created the sun and the moon to keep track of time. God created the sun and uh, God created the seasons for harvest and planting time. Uh, God created the water so that fish would be there for us. God created the land so that animals and plants with fruit would be there. God gave us a place to live, and He stocked the pantry full so that His people would thrive. How does this God use His power to cause you to thrive? to fill up the world with brilliant abundance of what you need, of what he made you to need. And so he's not a God who plays fast and loose with, I made you to need this, but once you ask for it, I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to give it to you. He's a God who made us to thrive. And that's what Israel needed to hear when they've been watching Pharaoh abuse his power for 400 years. Pharaoh used his power at Israel's expense. Does God, do you see God using his power, his resources, his desires to undercut yours? in a way that harms you? Or do you see him using all of his resources, all of his power, all, all of his life to bring life to you? Do you see him for you, for your thriving? Do you see him as a God who has built a home for you that's worthy of being called a home? 
Or is he the God who, when he pursues his happiness, it automatically means he's against yours? We'll finish with God made a home for us. What does it mean to have a home? Genesis 1 answers the question. I'm sensitive to saying this because a lot of you, this is the very reason what you grew up in, you don't consider it a home. But Genesis 1 would give us words to say a home is a place where the chaos is under control. As God put the chaos under control. Everything has its place at home and it stays in place at home. Um, Home is where you're provided for. Home is the place where you thrive, where you are you and the resources are there for you to thrive. Home is a place where you're known and you know. And so the question is, is that what kind of world God made? He made a home. He didn't make a random place for random people to walk around. He calibrated a home. He built a home for his people to thrive. Uh, the other, uh, Actually, this morning at Coffee, Jasmine was telling me a story about Matt Chandler's wife. Matt Chandler's a preacher, if you haven't heard of him. Uh, he said when she stitches, she's into crochet and stitching. He said when she makes sweaters, she doesn't just start randomly piecing together her needles and then out comes a sweater. And she's like, oh, look, a sweater came out of that. She starts up front with the design in her head and with the goal in mind, I'm going to make a sweater. And so every single stitch, every single stitch and movement of her hand is unto the goal of producing the sweater. And the same in whatever you're here studying, every field, that's what you do. You start with the plan and you work towards it. God starts with the plan of human flourishing, of you being alive, of you having life with a capital L forever with him. That's the goal he designed this place for. And that's what he brought about. Genesis is the story of him victoriously accomplishing. The sweater is made. The world is made. That's why he said it's good. It's not like, oh, a moon. That was cool. It's like, this is what I wanted. That's what I wanted it to be. It's good. It's the way I want it to be. It's good for them. That's what he means when he says it's good. Uh, and the whole passage is actually um, is, is driven by this idea of God making, the, making earth habitable, making it a home, making it a place that's suitable uh, for you and me. Next week, we'll talk about him making helpers that are suitable for us uh, in men and women. But that's what a home is. Home is a place you thrive. Home is a place that's safe. And like I said, uh, a lot of us have a lot of pain in our lives because that wasn't home for us. And this kind of leads us into a good place to begin to stop because everyone in the room, whether you grew up in a bad home or not, you are homesick. When I was a little boy, uh, my grandparents lived 20 minutes from my parents' house. This was not a big deal, but it was a big deal to me. Uh, I loved my grandparents. I spent a lot of time with them, so I actually knew them, but there was this time we had an idea to have a sleepover, and so I would go over at dinner time. All I was supposed to do is spend the night with my grandparents. They would pick me up at like 8 a.m. the next morning. I freaked out as soon as the lights went out. I was like 22, I think, at the time, so... Um, <laughs> I was probably over the age of 10, which makes it shameful, but, uh, <clears throat> but I freaked out. There's trains. They had a train tracks before the road. It sounds like thunder coming down the road when it comes on. I, the smells were different. I love my grandparents, but they're not my parents. It's not home. It's not the place where I thrive. It's not the place that's safe where chaos, things like trains, are under control. And so I sprang up out of bed, and I was inconsolable until my dad came and picked me up and took me back home. And there I was safe. And so that's kind of what homesickness feels like. It's, it's, it's a certainty I'm not safe here. I wasn't made for this. This doesn't smell familiar. This isn't right. This isn't what I was made for. And we are homesick people. 
because we have enough of a vestige of a memory of what home is supposed to be. Everybody does. And so even though we build our lives in shanty towns and places we know shouldn't be at home, we still remember a little bit about what home should be. And maybe it makes us cynics, we give up hope. Maybe it makes us pursue a lot of different avenues we think will we'll create a home. Uh, but again, that's what this passage is about. But we'll see in the coming weeks that what sin does is it makes exiles and homeless wanderers out of us. Because when Adam and Eve uh, turned against and, and suspected the God who we just talked about, the God of thriving and abundance and life and providing everything you need for thriving and flourishing, they looked at him and said, he's a stingy God. He's holding out on us. And so we are going to make a home uh, by ourselves. Well, God pushed them out of the garden for their own good, but that made homeless wanderers out of the human race. People who remember enough of what home is like to want to be there bat more than anything. And that's why bands today write songs like, home is wherever I'm with you. That implies home is, I'm homeless everywhere I'm not with you. We feel that pull and we move back there. The question is, can you ever get back there? Can you ever get back home? Dia Vandy's of the room. Can you get back home or are you stuck in the rebel camp believing the lies that you and I hear all the time? Do you entertain the possibility you can ever get back home? Do you see a God who is rustling your shoulder? Ben, Ben. Or does your God never come? Does he never show up? I don't know what God you think of, but the God of the Bible is a God who has filled up every single page here saying, watch me chase you as you wander. Watch me chase you as you run. Watch me gather you back home. Here's how, and this is, uh, we will finish with me reading Colossians 1 again that, um, that Michael read earlier. This is how God's bringing people home. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For through him, all things were created. Through Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is above and before all things, and all things hold together in him. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Here's the thing that in all things he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Bingo. Here it is. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. How is God bringing homeless people back home? Back to a place that wasn't just this static place where it's, okay, it's a 10 out of 10, but a place that was supposed to become an 11 out of 10, and then a 12 out of 10, and then a 13 out of 10 for infinity with God forever. This place that's perpetually snowballing into better and better and better and better and more life. How does God bring people back there? Through Jesus Christ, he is recreating the world. You remember that language? We are new creations in Christ. We are being made into his image. We are being remade. You remember Revelation 21. Behold, I'm making all things new. Behold, I'm recreating everything. The one who made it all to begin with says, I'm going to remake it all. The question is, when he stands tapping your shoulder, do you see him there to kill you and to take your life away? Or do you see him there to bring you back home towards life, towards Eden, towards the place of abundance? Who is he to you? 
Who is he to you? Your God is Solomon Vandy from that movie, chasing you down and saying, I am your father, and you are my son, you are my daughter, and you will come home with me now, and we will live together forever. The story begins where the story ends. Life with God forever, if you're in Jesus Christ. Christians aren't exclusive just to be mean. God says, through Jesus, I'm recreating the world. And so if you're not in Jesus, there's no recreation. There's no power. There's no word that says, let it be, and it happens. Jesus is willing to speak a word over you that says, come alive, and he will do it. Let's pray that he will. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are the one who has all this power, and you are the one who uses your power so well. You don't abuse it the way the politicians and the way we do and the way all the dictators do and the way Pharaoh did. You are the only one who uses your power to to prosper others, to chase wanderers, to bring us back to a place of thriving, back to a place of home. And so we are grateful to you when we pray that we would actually be able to believe that you are like this and bring us home, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.